Dave Fanning on 2FM. Now, the 90s. From an American perspective, we're talking Titanic and American Beauty, George Bush and Bill Clinton, the Oklahoma bombings, Clarence Thomas and Anita Hill, the Gulf War, Rodney King, David Corrish at Waco, Smells Like Teen Spirit, Seinfeld, Friends, O.J. Simpson, etc., etc. Now, Chuck Klosterman has written a great book about that last decade of the 20th century. It's kind of like a series of short or sometimes very long essays, and he follows some incredibly insightful philosophical or sociological comments with, say, a discussion about Achy Breaky Heart by Billy Ray Cyrus, our friends in low places by you-know-who. Looking back, it seems as though it was possibly a more innocent time to live before the rise of so many polarising issues. Klosterman compares the invention of the wheel with the development of the internet as a momentous shift in most people's lives. And the decade and all it might have meant doesn't end at the end of December 99, but on 9-11. Everything changed. So, from the collapse of the Berlin Wall at one end to the collapse of the World Trade Centre at the other. Let's check out the 90s with Chuck Klosterman. Chuck, you're very welcome to the programme. Now, Chuck, you can define the word easier, however you like, but was the 90s an easier time to be alive than now? Most people who lived through the 90s would argue, well, that was an easier time, certainly in America, uh, to be a person and to sort of be your own kind of person. But I, honestly, it's almost an impossible question because it, it, you're talking about individual experiences and no one's individual experience is identical to someone else's. So, I mean... No, of course, yeah. yeah. Okay, so, like, we are talking mostly about America here. I mean, the, the groundwork or the, the ground bit of this is really is America. But then again, that impacts the whole world. And in the 90s, they really did impact the whole world. And not just in the cultural side of the TV and radio, but everything else as well. So, um, the apathy question, which is one of the ones that jumped out of me did it glamorize apathy well there wasn't as much of a penalty for it so i suppose in a sense it did glamorize it and it, i mean glamour is a weird word to connect with apathy the, the apathetic person would be uninterested in glamour you know you know if we're going to go by the letter of the law um i think that particularly when you look at you know the early 90s because you know, there's, there's almost two chunks of the 90s. There's the first half that kind of passes through about 95 and the second half of the 90s, which seems more sort of intertwined with the world we have now. But during that first half, which has kind of become the caricature of the period, um, yeah. the idea of being disinterested in the world outside of yourself um, was um, a very common way to, to kind of go through your day-to-day -day life. And... There was some cachet, I guess, of who could be the least interested in things. Like it was almost like a, there's almost like this Gen X sort of desire to see who could be uh, the most underwhelmed by life. So I guess that's a kind of glamour. I I, I don't often associate, I mean, I associate the word glamour so much more with sure, the age, but, but yeah. uh, I know what you mean. Yeah. All right. And also, like, just to give the example would be Ethan Hawke and Reality Bites. I'm not under any orders to make the world a better place, he says. And that it, sums up a lot, does it, of Generation X? Well, it, it doesn't in a way, particularly because it would seem so contradictory to particularly how uh, kind of a young person is supposed to view the world now. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you talk to someone in their twenties and you uh, tell them, it was like, well, you know, when I was your age, I felt no obligation to make the world a better place or even be involved with it. That would seem real troubling and almost, you know, offensive in, in a sense, uh, because there is now uh, this has been this shift where the idea of sort of 
stepping away from society, viewing yourself as somehow separate from the collective uh, is exceedingly unpopular now. Now, is this a trend? And will things swing back in 15 years? It's possible, but I kind of doubt it. I think this is just sort of in the direction culture has creeped in. Okay, now, when you look at this book here, we're talking like completely across the board of the social, political, cultural history of the time. There's a lot of music and a lot of movies and a lot of everything else too. So TV is much more important in the 90s than I would have thought you would have given it. And in the, to me, that was much more 60s, 70s, 80s. But I mean, do you think in some ways that everything in the 90s is done with an eye to the camera? Well, you know, the reason television... I think is so important to the nineties. And you say like you associate that more as like a 50s, 60s, 70s phenomenon, which there, there is truth in that in the sense that, you know, during that period, television was really the edge of technology. It was the most sort of forward thinking thing a person yeah. was encountering. But I think what happened in the nineties was kind of the culmination of that. That you had these people who had been really raised by television, myself included being born in 1972. I have no memory of a time when television wasn't not just central to society, but like central to the life of my household. And I think that when you get to the nineties, what you really see in, I, I, I kind of tie this in with the film, the, matrix that it is almost as though uh we had been preparing people for 50 years to sort of think about reality as if it was a two-dimensional projection through a screen an example will be you can you can you can go to a young person and you can say like well you know um you know uh um imagine a football game and most people have been to one live. Most people have experienced it. But the first reaction most people have when asked that question is the image of a football game from television, the perspective of the camera from midfield, the distance they are from the field. It's as though we've been trained to first mm -hmm. assume yeah. that life is a mediated experience, even though we've all had real experiences. And that's, you know, I, I think that the, the, the 90s was probably the apex of that, because after that period, television recedes a bit, still you know, exceedingly popular, but the internet sort of replaces it, which is a much more proactive experience for the person. It's the, the, when a person thinks of the internet, they think of their involvement with it. When they think of television, they see it more as a one-way kind of entertainment. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like, but, but like by the mid nineties, as the internet took hold, we were being told that the internet was going to take over. We had no idea that it would take over to the extent that it did. But I just want to just look at a few other little bits pieces. Like every name and address was listed in a phone book. And everybody answered their landline because you didn't know who it was. I mean, like I, we used to do competitions on TV and we'd read out the full name and address and the house, and the road, and the street of everybody. Like that's kind of emotional violence now, it would seem. Is that the way it is? It is. It's, it's a strange thing, the whole idea of doxing and how it is now seen as a form of violence in itself. When in the past, like I don't know if this was if this is how it was, uh, you know, in your country, but in the U.S., if you didn't want your name in the phone book, you had to pay extra. Yes, like the, the, yeah. the, the, the working assumption yeah. was that, well, of course, <laughs> why would you not want people to be able to contact you? And the Internet had a psychological change on people. Like, even though if someone's living in, a, say, a city like New York and the phone book was being passed around to everyone. So everyone, millions of people had access uh, to your address, your phone number, all these ways to contact you. It somehow seemed analog and controlled where the Internet people perceive as something that is beyond their control. And, you know, it's odd to remember this, but in the middle 90s, when, say, like Amazon was a new retailer. 
People were very cautious about putting, say, their credit card number to any yeah. service like that. And, you know, uh, they would give it over the phone, but somehow it seemed more dangerous to type it into this system because one thing that it's easy to understand about the Internet is that it is vast. It seems limitless. It's almost like space. And that gives people a real discomfort and, and an alienation with something that they use every day, which is kind of paradoxical. Something you use every day should be comfort, comforting almost, but the internet is not for most people. Okay, just examples, like just have one-offs. There's just too many, obviously, to mention, but like a Rodney King, Friends, The Gulf War, Kuwait, Titanic, Ross Perot, American Beauty. It's just, you can jump back and forth. Smells like Teen Spirit, of course, huge. Um, just Friends. You seem to say that Friends was one of the biggest things in terms of television in the 90s and just it shaped so much, but they didn't seem to be living within that decade themselves. Well, this is always the irony with, with any kind of coverage of recent history, right? Whenever we think of recent history, we sort of end up being occupied with the things that seem I mean, extreme is a strange word, but sort of the, 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 the deepest extension of it. So this idea that in the early 90s, everyone was wearing flannel clothing because of grunge music and that everybody sort of had these kind of shared ideas about selling out and what was cool and and how you were supposed to live your life. When, as it is with all periods, most of the kind of cliches of a generation only apply to a sliver. And for the most part, the average person is just kind of moving through time. A television show like Friends really exists outside of time. You watch an episode of Friends, you know what happened in the 90s. You can kind of tell by their clothes it must be the 90s, but they're not often discussing things that seem connected to the world at that time. Whereas a program like My So-Called Life, which was only on for one season in the United States, I don't even know if it aired over there, but it was like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, that show is, is sort of used as like a... Uh, uh, like almost like a, uh, like a way to see what it was like to be a teenager during that period and the values that the characters had and the experiences they had, you know, were deeply reflective of the time. And yet that was sort of a fringe concern. Something like Friends, which exists outside of time, was the main thing. I mean, like one thing I, I, I note in this book is, you know, we think of someone like Courtney Love as like a, like a defining 90s figure. Like when I imagine the 90s and someone said, think of people from the 90s, I think of someone like Courtney Love. And yet for every record Courtney Love sold, Shania Twain sold about 14. Of course. You know, and, and Garth Brooks sold even more than that. But we don't look at Garth Brooks and Shania Twain and think these are 90s people. We think of them somehow as almost this generic, timeless thing. Um, and that's often how it works. If something really reflects a time period, it probably only mattered to a fraction of the populace. Right. I get you. Yeah. But also just to stay with television, the reflective cynicism you talk about of a program that I don't know as well as I should. Everybody over here knows it and loves it. And it was probably the biggest television program in America. And that's Seinfeld. Um, Seinfeld is about nothing, is it? Well, you know, that was the cliche about it. That was sort of how there, there's one specific episode where the, the cast members of Seinfeld directly talk about the idea that the show is about nothing. I think after a while, the makers of the show, you know, Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David, they felt as though they had been damaged sort of by this perception that it seemed to make it seem as though uh, it was just filler. And they were like, well, there was actually sort of themes to that show. I mean, what, what is, what is interesting about Seinfeld in comparison to so many other television programs, particularly the ones created in America is that 
the general sense in the U.S. is that like a sitcom is built around character more than plot. The people have to like these characters. And that did happen with Seinfeld, which was surprising because they were very mean people. They almost seemed fixated on not caring about other people. Uh, and, you know, that's a, a real kind of true subversion. Because here's a show that's the most popular show on, on television. It's, it's, it's not on super late. It's on in the middle of prime time. It sort of appeals to all demographics. And yet it was probably in some ways the darkest show from that period. If you really get down to the motives of the people on screen in that that they cared about no one but themselves. OK, but also like if the Vietnam War was the first war that Americans could see where their 19 year olds were being sent and being killed and crazy stuff on the news. Is it fair to say that the 90s, this was like the first time we saw it happen in real time, like for instance, the invasion of Kuwait? Yes. I mean, you know, we, we talk about the Vietnam War as sort of the television war because so much of that footage was seen, um, you know, on the news. But that was still a curated kind of yeah. information. It was, you know, it was things that had happened two days ago or two weeks ago. And uh, the news network kind of made a decision and what would be shown. The Gulf War was different in that it was a live war and that we were seeing, you know, we were hearing explosions and they were the same explosions the reporter on the ground was hearing. Um, and, you know, you could almost follow these missiles down chimneys and just you could like almost see the war like it was a video game. Now, to a, to a degree, that was curated, too. Because the, sure, yeah. the, the yeah. U.S. military had realized how they had kind of botched Vietnam by not controlling the messaging. And that, you know, so they were like, we're going to control the messaging of this. But at the same time, it was live. So there was always the risk that we were going to see something that would completely change uh, sort of, you know, the U.S. at least, or the Western perception of this war. And it never did happen, actually. I mean, the, the, that war was seen as a total success. You know, it was like a, almost like a, uh, a, a a one of the kind of the rare periods where there seemed to be a lot of good feeling in the U.S. about its own military. Um, and then that just disappeared, though. You'd think the liveness would have made it sort of more trenchant. But in fact, it just like kind of dissipated. And I mean, George H.W. Bush ended up losing the election in 92, um, despite having done seemingly everything right in terms of trying to win a second term as president. Like it is, uh, it's kind of one of the, at least American mysteries of the nineties. Like how did the first Bush lose reelection? And it kind of ended up altering everything that happened for the rest of that decade. Well, like pop culture accelerated. A lot of people would say it happened over in this part of the world directly after Live Aid yeah. in 85 and mm. certainly just came into its own in the 90s in so many ways. But this was without the aid of what we call a machine, a machine that remembered everything. In other words, you know what, the Internet. So was there a comfort in uncertainty? I, I don't think it would be possible to be conscious of that while it was happening. But in retrospect, it does seem comforting in the sense that Things were more anecdotal, discussions of history, discussions yeah. of politics, discussions of sports. There was not this idea that uh, at the conclusion of this conversation, someone has to have won the, the, the debate or we have to prove this. It was sort of more like, well, I perceive things like this. You perceive things like this. We're not going to go to the library and see who's right. We both sort of have this idea of what happened two years ago, and we can kind of coexist with these kind of parallel ideas. Um, what has strangely happened is why we've put a greater emphasis 
on being able to fact check factual data, the idea of sort of inventing a kind of factual data has become popular. It's, it, it, it is almost as though many of the things that we had hoped to achieve through the internet um, have both happened um, and then morphed into something that was worse than the alternative. In other words, we got the thing that we wanted the way that we wanted, but we had no idea that its actual manifestation would result um, in a society that feels much more chaotic and fragile. I mean, in, I'm 50 years old. There's never been a point in the United States, in my experience, where the culture seemed as fragile and seemed as chaotic. And, you know, why is that? Is it just the natural evolution and maturation of the world? Possibly. But I think the Internet plays a outsized role in that. Right, indeed. By the way, we're talking to Chuck Tosterman. The 90s is the name of the book, and it's all there in terms of social, political, cultural history. And also, it's fun. Now, one of the things is here that, like, this business is about decades, Chuck. I mean, this is what we do. I don't know how long we've done this thing of, you know, framing everything in a decade, maybe only since the 1910s, 1920s. I don't know if it was in the 1800s, but I suppose it's as good as any other, right? So any decade kind of, you know, inspires something in terms of, ah, that's how we remember something. So was there anything to the 90s? Let's say freedom was the 60s, malaise to the 70s, greed and speed to the 80s. Is there a thematic label? Well, you know, this is maybe doesn't seem straightforward enough, but I mean, the 90s to me were really a period of um, almost casual postmodernism, that that a lot of the the ideas of what what came to to be sort of identified as postmodern, the idea of art recognizing that it is art, the idea of advertising being seen as sort of interchangeable with, you know, sculpting or whatever. It's like they're all, I I mean, I, I think that that is, is to me the thing that categorizes this period. You know? Okay, well then, did something change? Yeah. For instance, Rodney King in the early 90s, um, let's go to the OJ reality yeah. TV show, I'll yeah. call it, in 1994, the discussion of the history of race openly. Did that really happen? Uh, here again, I, I, there was never a time in my life when I can recall race not being discussed. Okay. Like that, that was in the seventies, you, you, people were discussing racism and how that affects sort of the structure of the United States. What has changed though, is, um, you know, you, you move to like the Rodney King situation and this thing that had been something you heard about in an NWA song is now very, very vivid on the television, like exactly what they claimed was happening. Okay. You move to OJ, uh, where this figure who had sort of transcended race, I mean, somebody who had did not even really view himself as black, he just viewed himself as OJ, is on trial for a murder, and race becomes the center of his defense. And uh, from that point on, kind of the specter of race, um, the idea of the race card or whatever, is something that we almost anticipate seeing, uh, you know, in any story involving anything that isn't all people of. Uh, of the safe race, you know, we now are in a period where um, it is the center of almost every story. I mean, like, like the idea of identity, if not necessarily racial, gender wise, however you want to look at it, is now sort of part of any discussion you have about virtually any current event. So, you know, you want to argue that like this started in the 90s, it wouldn't totally be accurate, but for the average person, and their sort of feel of it, their sense of the texture of the time, it probably makes sense that the early 90s is when this became uh, an inescapable idea. 
Okay, well then finally, Chuck, just on that note of the celebrity whole thing, which I really think it just took off in the 90s and look where we are now. Do you think celebrity culture like was on the eve of a digital explosion and we kind of saw that towards the end of the 90s and it has completely and absolutely come true? Well, you know, it's it's one of those strange situations where two seemingly contradictory things were happening at the same time. You look at someone like Kurt Cobain or Eddie Vedder or... You know, uh, uh, the guys in Soundgarden, the guys in Alex, Alice in Chains, like they're ascending as cultural figures. Uh, but at the same time, they present the idea of fame and celebrity as the most humiliating thing possible. Yeah, that, that, yeah. That, 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 you know, for Nirvana, their, their aesthetic was really built on this idea that we think like a counterculture group. We think of ourselves as being against the mainstream and yet we're the biggest band in the world. And it kind of creates this dissonance. So the idea, or like when we talked about reality bites, the idea of the characters in reality bites would be, well, we make fun of celebrities. We think it's just, you know, pathetic. And yet things like reality television, the the genre of memoir, all of these things became bigger. You know, by the end of the nineties, there were more celebrities than there had ever been. I mean, you really notice this now on social media, for example, a celebrity will die and there'll be kind of like a day or two of outpouring of, uh, you know, people thoughts about like, oh, David Bowie's dead. This is what it meant to me or Prince is dead. It's kind of hard to imagine in 25 or 30 years how often this is going to happen. Like there's someone relatively famous going to be dying constantly because we've built so many celebrities we had all the ones from the 50s 60s and 70s but then they got it it went up in the 80s and really went crazy in the 90s and now so i i it's almost like in the future will we become immune to celebrity death because celebrities are going to be dying constantly because we've made so many of them well then let's just see when you write the noughties as we call it i think you call it the arts in america maybe in a few years time chuck it's been a real pleasure thank you so much we're talking about the social political cultural history analytical historical informative and very entertaining romp through that last 10 years of the last century it is simply called the 90s the right title for it of course chuck thanks very much for talking with us thanks for talking to me dave fanning on 2fm